This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
380 crew, River to the Sea, we acknowledge Indigenous Elders past, present and emerging during NAIDOC week and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded in this country. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Wiridjuri queer Mitch Hibbins joins us. We also speak with Rochelle Johnson about Sunday's Melbourne rally in support of trans and gender diversity rights and the Victorian Government's Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill. And later, political activist Neil Farrow joins us to share his analysis of the religious freedom debate in Australia. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You are indeed. Mitch Hibbins is a Wiradjuri queer man from southern New South Wales, joins us in the studio. Mitch, happy NAIDOC week. Thanks, James. It's uh, great to be here and uh, thanks for inviting me to have a yarn with you today. It's Um, a great pleasure. I guess some of the issues that must come up for you are around queerness intersecting with culture. I mean, look... One of the things when we always talk about Indigenous queer issues is that often for us blackfellas who kind of skirt around those two different intersections of our identities, that there's two kind of like binary stories, the redemptive narrative and and the kind of my community accepted me. And I think that um, what I really always try and make a point is saying our experiences are as unique and diverse as each and every one of us. So that's always a good starting point to have that yarn. And and I suppose my experience is unique to me. And of course, there are, I mean, some similarities and synergies across many different queer Indigenous mob. Um, They're coming out experiences and acceptances with community. But I think the takeaway message from that kind of piece is that we're all, you know, there's so much diversity in that experience. And you've had so much diversity in your life. I mean, you've been an athlete, you've worked in community health, you've worked in, in academia. Tell us a bit about your personal journey. Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a, it's been a fun ride, let's put it that way, that, um, you know, um, starting out in, my, in terms of work, I suppose, um, I, I ended up at working at my first job was at an Aboriginal medical centre. And I think for a lot of blackfellas, that's where we cut our teeth in terms of understanding some of the really raw issues beyond our families, of course we see some of the you know the the really terrible things and um, inequality that our communities face in our day-to-day lives but I, I you know I started out there in at AMS level um I had a failed athletics career didn't quite make it as uh, as a superstar and so kind of thought health was the next kind of journey for me and then have ended up in academia not by accident but it also wasn't deliberative I have to ask you about your athletics career what was your specialty look I, I was a 400 meter runner, so of course, um, you know, Kathy Freeman was my absolute uh, hero, and I thought I was going to be the uh, the Kathy Freeman, the next Kathy Freeman. But you know what? Uh, I kind of discovered uh, men, and that kind of took me down a different path. So, <laughs> fair enough. And of course, uh, you hail from Southern New South Wales. Just over the border, of course, is Wodonga, and you organised their first uh, Indigenous LGBTIQA event. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, um, I suppose visibility is really important for queer Indigenous communities, and um, I and part of you know seeing ourselves reflected in our local community. And myself and um, one of my cousins, Bobby Wybrow, and um, Aaron the man, Aaron Perkins Kemp Berger, we came together and we're like we don't see ourselves reflected in the local queer community um, and so we organised what we call Dragioki and and, uh, and we performed for our community um, in NAIDOC last year to thank particularly um, Aboriginal women who've been um, foundational in our lives and supporting our journey so we created Dragioki and it was a night of fun, fabulosity of black queerness so yeah we're hoping that you know that is a, a, a kind of common feature of the queer Indigenous calendar up in um, uh, Wiradjuri country in um, Albury. And of course, there's just some awesome queer drag Indigenous artists. We had Trey Turner on the show a couple of months ago. Tell us a bit more about your drag persona. 
I'm part of a drag family, like, in, I don't know what we can say at this time of the day, but um, we're the, the Fork sisters. And um, so Anita Fork, who is my namesake, is a little bit uh, a little bit bold, a little bit brassy, a little bit, you know, promiscuous, as her name would suggest. And, um, yeah, just likes to a good time kind of girl, but also, also likes to call out uh, a bit of the bullshit that happens in communities um, that, that, you know, the challenges that face queer Indigenous communities. So... What are some of the biggest challenges that jump out to you in that area? I mean, as I kind of like alluded to earlier, we start from a place of representation. I think that's a really important foundation. And um, we saw uh, last week as part of Victorian NADOC week, we had the Pride Night, um, which was a, a you know a fabulous evening of carving that out that space for um, queer Indigenous communities. But I think there's not one particular issue that stands out. Obviously, if you follow, I guess, um, Indigenous health, there is, I guess, a number of challenges around Indigenous suicide, particularly relating to queer Indigenous communities. And I think that um, seeing queer Indigenous people represented in health policy is still something that we're not um, seeing that voice represented. And so I guess we're still at that kind of the start of that journey of, of how we have um, our voice represented in all those different areas of health, education and well-being so that we can ref- see, uh, I suppose, policy made uh, informed by queer Indigenous voices that affects us. We've been really lucky on In Your Face over the last few months to have Peter Waples Crow on the show a couple of times talking about his art, but also talking about his queer health promotion work. And one of the comments he made was along those lines, we don't really know what the links are between, you know, say suicide and same-sex attracted within Indigenous communities, that there hasn't been a lot of research in that area. Look, I suppose. Um, look, I don't. I don't position myself as a, I guess, a, a queer kind of academic expert. But I guess from my own lived experience, you know, there is. I, I think we have to look at the the way colonisation has shaped our understanding of sexual identity. A lot of what we know about pre seventeen eighty eight around, I guess, gender structures has. Unfortunately, in, in my part of the world, um, and, and I'm neighbours with Peter, he's Narago, um, Viradri, so up that way, a lot of that was obliterated in terms of understanding. Um, but we know from other First Nations um, mobs around the globe that uh, gender didn't you know, necessarily exist in those binaries that we see in Western society. So that's a great place to start um, in terms of interrogating um, how we relive that knowledge as well and, and ensure that Aboriginal um, youth, queer youth, are kind of part of the picture, and it's not this you can't have culture and be queer. It's actually they meet very nicely and are supported. And I guess there's a lot of reclaiming that needs to be done around, you know, connecting queerness and and culture because obviously it was there, you know, pre-colonisation. It's just been, you know, to a large extent obliterated by by Western civilizations. Yeah, I mean, look, and that's, I can't speak from across the, the, the continent, but certainly, I mean, Wiradjuri country, in terms of words and language around gender identities and sexuality, um, there's not necessarily that knowledge. But also, I think I, I, I tend to reflect on it from this perspective is that all cultures evolve as well. And whether or not um, it existed pre 1788 doesn't really, it's not necessarily, you know, it needs to have um, had that connection because we're evolving. Um, Aboriginal cultures are not static. They've had to respond to various contemporaneous pressures and issues such as colonisation. So we actually have a chance through representation and ownership of that voice to kind of define that narrative and say, well, yep, here we are, we're here, we're queer, we're black, 
we're awesome and fabulous. You're a great advocate of Indigenous-led policy solutions. And, of course, we're living in a climate where the federal government often ignores or stymies Indigenous-led policy solutions. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I think, you know, we only have to look at what's been happening around, I suppose, the national theme for, for NAIDOC and Voice Treaty and Truth and then seeing the Liberal government's response to the statement from the heart. And, I mean, that's ultimately frustrating. We do see voice... Uh, represented in so many different ways, like um, blackfellas have been, you know, shouting, talking, protesting diplomatically in conversation around our issues for 230 years. So the way that we, you know, I think about pragmatic ways of uh, representation at the table, certainly proponents of the statement from the heart, you know, and the reforms that are part of that voice treaty and truth sequence, you know, reform, law reform, saying that there are there is a voice to Parliament and that is centres and is led by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in decision making. But more broadly, I suppose the the media landscape, I think the mainstream media landscape, and and uh, rejecting a lot of those kind of stereotypes that are pushed out about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the mainstream media, um, and taking up, I suppose, community radio, independent. Indigenous media, such as Indigenous X, which shout out to them if you don't follow Indigenous X on Twitter or their blog or anything like that. That's a great place for, I suppose, the the broader community to start educating themselves so they can be good allies as well. And we're seeing the situation, of course, where Ken White, an Indigenous man, is the Minister for Indigenous Affairs. And, you know, he's only been in the job for really a few weeks and the government's already stymieing his his policy initiatives. It's not a good kind of, you know, beginning, is it, for for the Morrison government's second term? No, I don't think so. And I think Mr Wyatt, I suppose, um, of course, it's 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 an incredible thing to see an Aboriginal person as the you know, the Minister for Indigenous Australians. My personal kind of view on that is that, you know, sometimes within that structure of you know, a Western liberal democracy, he's going to be stymied anyways by a conservative party. And he's also, um, in terms of if you view his voting record, quite a conservative voter himself um, in terms of his policy kind of line. Again, comes back to representation and that's good for our youth and our um, young people coming through, seeing that that is a, an achievable kind of uh, pathway for them. But as also then for me, I think it says we need to disrupt and continue as, as we've done disrupting outside and challenging those really, you know, we've, we've gone back to this whole yarn about constitutional recognition, which is, you know, that, that was 2015's news. We should have buried that ages ago. What is the big policy initiative in the Indigenous community that you think Ken White should be running with as the minister? What should his priority be? I don't think there's, I mean, it's hard to prioritise. Prioritize. I think we need to kind of change the, the narrative around the closing the gap. I think moving to a strengths-based approach, which doesn't mean that we deny that there are, you know, the incarceration of mob is, you know, we're over-criminalised, we're criminalised from the day we are born. So it doesn't deny that when we move to a strengths-based approach, but we have to stop um, government particularly wallowing in this um, this gap. It's like there's so much strength in our communities, in our leaders, in our Aboriginal women who, you know, are a constant source of inspiration for me each and every day that we can lead these conversations and, and say there's no one issue that's prioritised because, unfortunately, after 230 years of colonisation uh, that's ongoing, of course, there's a lot of, a lot of really um, awful things that we've got to contend with. 
Mitch Hibbins, it's been absolutely awesome chatting with you on 3CR today. We must have you back so we can talk some more. Happy NADOC week and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are gathered here today in remembrance of innocence lost. What are you in this day and age in this society without your cash? Without your Skrilla? I want you to take a second right now and ponder that.
Snobskilla chasing ghosts. Well, there's a rally this Sunday here in Melbourne at three o'clock outside Victoria's Parliament House in support of the Victorian government's births, deaths, marriages amendment bill. And uh, it's also in support, of course, of trans rights. I'm very, very honoured to have Rochelle Johnson in the studio, who's the organiser. Welcome. Hey, how you going? Good to be here. Always great to have you on the show. Great to have you at 3CR. Hey, look, I, I heard you on Sally's show uh, on Sunday and you were saying that this issue of self-determination on birth certificates, which is what the Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill will give trans and gender diverse folks, was right up there with marriage equality in terms of its significance. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think... There's nothing more important than being able to have the access to the documents that you need to have to make your way through life. And, you know, we saw in marriage equality, what was really communicated really well was the importance, not just from being seen as the same as everyone else in terms of having access to marriage, but also the legal things, the things that went around that, like um, next of kin status and all of those things. You know, that was a really important thing. And we're so... It's just so awesome that that's come through. And one of the outcomes that we don't talk too much about out of that was the changing of the state-based marriage, uh, birth, deaths and marriages laws around uh, removing forced divorce. Now, some states did a bit of a double banger and changed, like Tasmania, they did a change where they made access to the correct gender much easier, as well as just removing the forced divorce rules around that. But in Victoria, we didn't do that initially. And I think that was around the state of the government at the time and and all of those things. We had a state election coming up soon. We didn't know what the state of play was going to be. The, the legislation already failed in 2016. The legislation that's come up now is very similar to that. And it is really important. I mean, just imagine, you know, for, for cis people, just imagine every time you had to present your birth certificate, it had the wrong information on it or it placed you in a place in a situation that might have been dangerous for you or it forced you to have people look at you and question your integrity, your honesty, who you were as a person, even at sometimes questioning your kind of humanity almost. It's like, you know, we trans folk, we're kind of, we walk through life with that sense that sometimes people look at us as if we're from another planet or of another species or something and we're not we're just people we're just humans and you know people talk about you know the right wing love to talk about the trans ideology and the the radical gender theory and and all of that stuff and yeah we've got we've got an agenda our agenda is to live our lives safely and equally just like the rest of the world so this legislation is significant human rights legislation. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely the case, you know, particularly for, you know, if you have to travel overseas and you have a passport and a birth certificate that have different information on them, that places you at risk to for possible imprisonment, all sorts of issues arise there. And, um, you know, that sh- it just shouldn't be. We shouldn't have to carry identification documents that actually don't match the our identity and especially for um gender diverse non-binary folk you know currently they don't have an option their 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 identity is not male their identity is not female and they don't actually have an option in the um victorian primary school system their systems say male or female there's no other option and uh a friend of mine with a non-binary uh young child they're weren't able to have their pronouns or their gender accurately represented in those school school-based systems because the school's decision was, oh well, we just default to the birth certificate, 
And so the birth certificate either is either an M or an F, and that's then it doesn't match. Either of those don't match for that for that young person, and they're stuck in this situation of kind of being in a no man's land. So obviously, the government has heard heard yeah. all of that. There must be incredible energy in the trans community and gender diverse community in Victoria around this legislation. People must be very, very optimistic. You only need three votes in the upper house for it to pass. Yeah, I think we are. I think, uh, and in fact, on the event page today, I had a person asking, is it really worth going? You know, this legislation's going to pass. This legislation's going to pass. And yes, I think we feel that it will pass. I think the general feeling in the community and, um, and Ro Allen, the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality has communicated that they believe they have the numbers. But numbers are numbers and numbers can move. And And politics is fragile. Exactly. Especially at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, those three votes gives a majority of one. And I'm sure we all want there to be more than a majority of one. Uh, We don't want to be in a situation that we were in 2016 thinking, yay, this is going to happen. And then that's, it's devastating. It's a devastating reality that, that that's not, not going to be able to happen. But I think um, I didn't look closely at the 2016 legislation, so I'm not sure what the inclusion was around non-binary people in that version. I believe the legislation is quite similar this time around. But what's really encouraging about it, I think, and but will also be a little bit controversial, I think, is that the the options are, according to the bill, you can have female, male or any other sex and then you enter in that identity statement, which is, um, which is great. I think that's really awesome because we know there that people describe their gender with different terms and to not restrict that you know, into a set list that still might not match for some people is a really good thing. I think the controversial part about that is we'll get the comments about, oh, people can be helicopter pilot or whatever. You know, I, I identify as a chopper. You know, like we, we see that kind of rhetoric and narrative in the those particularly with the right wing kind of side of side of the narrative that say that kind of thing. So I think whilst I think this is a really good part of the legislation, I think there's a concern for me that that will be used in a negative way in the narrative. And so I think, but, you know, just like when you have been, we've been able to change our names legally for who knows how long. And there's a sim, like, it's similar to that. You choose your name. If you choose a name that's not acceptable because it's offensive or, you know, it's a a royal title or something like that, then they say, no, you can't have that. Sorry, that's just a bit silly. And I think that's essentially what's written into this legislation, again, is that the the registrar has that power of veto to say this is not an appropriate title. And the reality is most people are going to put male, female or X. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, so they'll, I, think, I think the most common descriptor other than that will probably be non-binary. Um, but I think there's also that option for people to say put genderqueer or new Troy or agender or whatever there. So I think that's um, I think it's just a really positive part and an inclusive part of that legislation. It's not just a, it's not just catering to trans people that are binary trans. It's actually catering for our community as a whole, which I think is really important. So three crossbenchers need to vote yes for it to pass, and you're looking at people like, I guess, Fiona Patton, Sam Ratnam, and the gentleman Mm. from the Animal Justice Party. Are they making any noises in favour of the bill? My um, understanding, I haven't heard anything directly from them, but what I have heard is that both Fiona and 
sorry, I've forgotten that second name. I've just gone blank. Oh, Sam Ratton. From Sam the Ratton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Greens. They're both pretty much on board. The the questionable one, I think, is the the animal, the, the Justice Party. There's a belief that they'll have his vote. I understand he has a trans kid, which is obviously going to be a motivator in in regards to what he thinks personally. Um, but obviously, he is still part of a party, and um, being part of a party means that you sometimes you have to toe the line and vote in the way that your party tells you to vote, I guess. And so I think there is a concern at some level there of, is that really a locked-in vote? I really hope it is. I guess I'm a little bit <laughs> bit of a cynic sometimes, I suppose, and I, I worry. Um, what I'd love to see is to see some support from the from the from the Liberal Party, and and which I guess that's pie in the sky sometimes. But we'll, well, you know, I mean, what's Michael O'Brien, their leader, saying about this legislation? I've not heard anything directly from him at this point. Admittedly, I'll admit I haven't followed the political debate, the parliamentary political debate on it closely. Um, I'd like to get more involved in that, but life is busy, <laughs> as you can imagine. But, um, you know, the nexus for this event was when the, the at the first reading it was put in Parliament, there were a couple of articles coming out in the media and I just felt, oh, this is going to be hard work from here on in. There's going to be a lot of narrative. There's going to be a lot of negativity come out and... I went to bed that night and I thought to myself, you know what we need? We actually need to gather as a community and be positive and celebratory about who we are. We need to not protest but affirm this legislation. We need to turn up and we need to affirm the, the, the Andrews government. This is actually good. They're doing a good thing. and we need, But at the same time, recognise that there's going to be opposition. And, you know, by celebrating ourselves, putting ourselves out there as integral parts of as an integral part of the community we have that opportunity to for people that maybe may initially have an opposition to actually see oh we're just humans we're just people that want to go about their lives have the appropriate documentation live safe have equality be able to access housing employment all of those things and that's who we are that's our agenda we just want to live our lives and um, I think by by kind of pitching this event in a celebratory space. My hope is that we'll be able to have a positive call on all parliamentarians, but also a bit of a positive, perhaps, nudging of the needle in the media and in the way they report about trans and gender-diverse folk. A bit of a shift away from the way they talk about us and maybe actually talking to us first and actually correctly representing us in the way that we are rather than in this kind of alien kind of Pandering to bigots. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we see that particularly in the Murdoch press. But it's not purely the Murdoch press. It's, you know, there was a last, the Sunday Age last, this week published a, a piece by an academic at Melbourne Uni, Melbourne Uni, and, and she wrote this scree about how this was dangerous to women and, and blah, 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 blah. The same old trans exclusionary radical feminist dogma that we get all the time. Which causes so much hurt and marginalises people further. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's very, it's a very wedge kind of way. Polarising. Yeah. You've got some great speakers on, on Sunday. Give us, give us um, who's the lineup? So we've got, we've got Janet Rice, really thrilled that Janet could join us, particularly given her busy parliamentary schedule. So she's coming along and, and Janet's been a great ally to the to the, the whole queer community, but especially to the trans community and has her own story 
that goes along with that. And um, that that whole story for her of real when her when her partner came out and when Penny came out, yeah, yeah, when Penny came out, and and that there's a whole story there about how Janet had to go. Oh, okay. Well, what do I do with this? And we've got Georgie Georgie Stone and her mum speaking. So Georgie is an amazing young advocate who, with uh, the support of her mum, was instrumental in the changing of the law in terms of access to uh, medical without family court orders. So she's coming to talk and we've got a Pacific Islander trans woman coming, an Indigenous trans woman coming and a Southeast Asian trans woman coming to speak, a couple of disabled advocates. And um, so, yeah, the idea is really one of my things was it's really important that we represent our community, not just as white, cis, trans women, but a, we, we're a diverse community. We're from all over the world, from all sorts of walks of life. We, some of us are disabled, some of us are neurodiverse, some of us are of uh, people of colour. So we need to represent that in in our community, not just you know. It's too often our I as a white person get access to to things that that others don't. So I'm doing my best to centre those more diverse sections of our community to speak about their life as a trans as a trans person or an, or a non-binary person and to speak about how this legislation will impact their lives anyone from the government rocking up to speak unfortunately not um roe wanted to come but um she's delivering a paper in sydney this weekend so unfortunately not but if they if anyone from the government is listening and wants to come along and speak they're more than welcome to come and join us Fantastic. So give us those details for Sunday. So it's 3pm to 5pm on the steps of Parliament. Rock up, bring your brolly because it is Melbourne. Grab your rainbow flags or your trans flag or your non-binary flag or any of your queer flags because as a queer community we're standing together. So rock up 3 o'clock, Parliament House steps and um, come in here for some great stories about trans life and, and call on our government to continue the fight to pass the legislation. Rochelle yeah. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Rochelle's the organiser of that rally on Sunday in support of the Victorian Government's Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill. Thank you so much for coming into 3CR. Thank you. And uh, here's Joni Mitchell. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I heard a song outside my window and the traffic wrote the words it came ringing up like Christmas bells and wrapping up like pipes and drums oh won't you stay we'll put on the day and we'll wear it till the night comes woke up it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I saw was the sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on my wall blue red green and gold to welcome you crimson crystal beads to beckon oh won't you stay we'll put on a day there's a sun show every second now the curtain opens on a portrait of today Streets are paved with passers-by And pigeons fly And papers lie Waiting to blow away
woke up, it was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I knew, there was milk and toast and honey, and a bowl of oranges too, and the sun poured in like butterscotch, and stuck to all my senses. Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on the day, and we'll talk in present tenses. with her classic Chelsea Morning, joined in the studio by Neil Farrow, a political activist and uh, a big supporter of the push for the Australian government to ban Royal Brunei Airlines from Australia. Welcome, Neil, to 3CR. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Great pleasure. Last time you were on, that was the issue we were talking about. There was a petition that you got up that was asking the Deputy Prime Minister and the Transport Minister to ban that airline after uh, Brunei implemented its death penalty. What response did you get in the end? We got an overwhelming support uh, response to that, actually. I think uh, close to 30,000 signatories and a number of people actually donated uh, such that we ran an ad in the Deputy Prime Minister's electorate talking about the issue in the campaign during the election campaign. And I think we've actually seen some uh, reverse of Brunei's position. And while the, the legislation still stands, I think they've definitely softened it and, and committed to not enforcing it. So it's not quite good enough and we still need more pressure applied. Um, but I think it was a good first step that internationally the condemnation sort of kept the pressure up and and hopefully we'll see continued outcomes if we can keep the pressure on. And they, remember, they do own hotels and we are consumers, so the best thing to do is just not to fly them. So You wrote an article that was published over the weekend talking about the plague that's infecting Australian politics. Can you elaborate on that? It, it was indeed. It was actually, uh, I've received lot, lots of feedback. Almost all of my non-political friends have been very favourable towards the article. A lot of my political friends have been a, a little bit less so. But it was just talking about the fact that in the latest federal elections, we've actually increased the number of professional politicians that we have in Canberra. So these are people who previously were staffers or advisors or electorate officers and, and sort of have spent their life in politics. And before this election, we were around 55% and we've actually started to break the 60% mark now in Canberra, which means of the 220 MPs that we've got up there, over 60% have been staffers, advisors uh, or electorate officers previously. And and it was a bit of an article reflecting on the fact that this isn't actually good for our democracy and why not? Oh, well, there's a, a, you know, having knowledge and, and expertise is one thing and having a small number of people who have experience in, in staff or political roles is, is a great thing. Um, but when the majority of your parliament now is is purely people who have just been staffers and advisors, and I was making the point in the article, you know, other people who have other professions, doctors, nurses, lawyers, artists, business people, um, there's no pathway for them now to enter politics federally. So it's a close shop. Uh, a bit of a close shop. And, and the other side of it that makes it uh, very difficult is you, you get echo chambers that exist if all of the people you associate with uh, believe in the same thing as you. And and look, I always joke that both my parents are swinging voters. Um, and while I fall on the Labor side of the fence, I know in the last election, one parent voted one way and, and one voted the other. But it definitely keeps you very real um, around the issues that exist. And, and I think we just need a bit more diversity in our parliament up in, in Canberra. And I think the Australian public will get a lot closer and a bit more affectionate uh, to our politicians if we do so. 
So the plague has created the Canberra bubble. Uh, I think so. I think I labelled the eleventh plague of uh, the eleventh biblical plague is that of the professional politician. But um, look, I, I just think we need that diversity in all all sectors and, and professional experience as well. And it's disappointing that we I think we have one nurse left in Parliament now, and and sort of maybe one doctor. And and I think our Parliament can be better than that. What's your response to the Morrison government's push for so-called greater religious freedoms in Australia, particularly for the LGBTIQ community? I mean, we had Rodney Croom on the show last week. He's very concerned. What's your take on it? Look, I'm pretty concerned as well. Um, We hear mixed things. The Liberal Party's holding the legislation very close to their chest federally, so nobody actually knows what is the intention and how far it will go. You know, in best case scenario, it will be um, effectively adding religion as a protected attribute, which we already have at state level. So, you know, there's already a, a lot of noise about an issue where religious protections exist at state level. So that's the best case scenario. But worst case scenario is actually that individuals will be able to claim that their deeply held religious belief means that they should be able to discriminate on an individual basis. Um, Now, what that means is I'm obviously a gay identifying male, but, um, you know, somebody can come up to me in a workplace, in a shop, in a cinema, in any sort of environment and say, look, I don't want to serve you because of my deeply held religious belief. And I that, might make the wedding cake. Or I want, this, is, this is the extension of the wedding cake, but it goes even further than that around services and individuals. So, you know, in a workplace where at the moment you all have policies around bullying and harassment, potentially somebody could bully on the basis of sexuality or sex or gender on the basis that they have a deeply held religious belief. And, and some people have said that's a bit extremist, but we're already seeing this happening in the US. Um, I posted an article article up on Facebook, I think, this morning, where uh, a female uh, reporter, the go- a governor candidate, in a governor candidate, gubernatorial candidate, sorry, in the US, didn't want a female reporter travelling with him and claimed that his deeply held religious belief meant that she, um, it wasn't appropriate for her to travel with him. And, you know, that starts the precedent of erasing rights that women have fought for for decades, as well as the LGBTI community for decades, if any religious belief can be used to discriminate. Do you think there's potential for the coalition itself to be wedged on this issue between its religious right within its parliamentary ranks and its freedom of speech advocates such as those from the Institute of Public Affairs who are saying, no, you know, this is Section 18C Mark 2 it's going to impact on free speech? What do you think the political dynamics there could play out like? Well, look, I think it's interesting. The freedom of speech warriors are very selective over which arguments they mount for freedom of speech. So, you know, the perfect example of this that's current at the moment is the uh, Izzy Falau activity, where the free speech activists have been like, you know, he's entitled to have his opinion and, you know, we're imposing on his opinion by quarantining what was in effect a workplace contracts agreement. And yet during the marriage equality plebiscite, we actually had straight teachers sacked from Catholic schools because those straight teachers expressed their support of marriage equality. So, you know, the religious institutions can't have it both ways. They either support they support people to have their free speech or they don't. And, and David Mars made a great comment. The sort of rights they want isn't equality or fear of persecution. It's an, an additional form of privilege. Why should they be allowed to discriminate and not others in society? And, and I think it is a worrying trend. I don't know who will win in the Liberal Party. I hope sensible heads will prevail, but it is very close in the Senate and uh, I think the pressure will be on for everyone to advocate, particularly to their Liberal and National Party MPs and and the crossbench in the Senate, to see and keep the pressure up in this space. Because this could really open up those wounds that were so evident in the Turnbull era around same-sex marriage. This could actually be highly problematic for the Liberal Party. It could be highly problematic, particularly when you... To an extent, it's it's a discussion over religious freedom only to certain religions. So, you know, we're already having discussions in Queensland today over whether the burqa should be banned on in some circumstances. And yet, 
arguably that's a religious freedom to choose what you wish to wear. But it seems that uh, religious freedom only applies to a certain cohort of uh, of people. And, and it's interesting, you know, Scott Morrison recently presented at a conference for Hillsong. You know, Hillsong has about 40,000 members across Australia. 48,000 Australians nominated that they were Jedi in the last census. So Jedi is a bigger religion than, um, than Hillsong. And perhaps the LGBTI community should just flip sides and become our own religious uh, organisation. We get tax deductibility then. We don't have to pay taxes. And then every time anybody picks on us, we can claim that uh, they're persecuting a religion. So Scott Morrison's outnumbered by the Jedis. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, look, let's focus on the Labor Party for a moment. Many people were very concerned by Anthony Albanese's reported comment that uh, he wanted to cut back on LGBTIQ policy. What are you hearing within Labor ranks about that and what does it all mean? So Anthony Albanese in his first speech to Parliament actually mentioned LGBTI rights. So he has a long legacy in this space. Um, I think a number of people were disappointed around some of the language and tone, um, but he has actually clarified some of those statements in Parliament that they were taken uh, out of context. And I think Rainbow Labor has been very active not just with Anthony Albanese, but Bill Shorten and historically speaking. So, you know, I'm I'm op- having met Anthony on a couple of occasions, I'm optimistic he'll do the right thing. And I know he's got people around him who are definitely committed to doing so. Um, I think we do need to keep our focus on the government, obviously, because Labor is in opposition, but we're not the ones writing the bills at the moment. But I, look, I'm cautiously optimistic and, and we've got a very strong legacy of reform in the LGBTI space. But the election loss was a bit of a blow for everyone on the Labor side of the fence, I think. Were you concerned about some of the rhetoric that was coming out after the election from Chris Bowen and Christina Keneally tapping into that Christian right narrative that it was a religious freedom election and that Labor needs to appeal more to religious voters? Do you think the Labor Party's been spooked after the shock election loss? Look, I think I'm not quite sure. And, and as I said, I'm a proud Labor Party member and, and twice candidate and former national convener. But um, I haven't been as involved at the federal level, particularly since the last uh, the last election. So I'm not sure what's happening in their minds and in that space. But I think there's enough hardheads to realise that 40% of Australians now are atheist, agnostic or no religion. So, you know, 40% is bigger than the number of people who are Catholic. I think only 22% of Australians are Catholic. So I think the realism is the Labor Party hopes to form government federally and continue to form government at, at state levels. And to do so will mean that if you become hyper, hyper-religious, uh, you, you actually isolate 40% of the population, which is a fair voting block. So I'm hopeful that hardheads will prevail and um, there won't be too much reaction. But Labor will go through, uh, as, as it does every election, a, bit, a review of what worked and what didn't. And we did go into the election with a very pro-LGBTI platform in a number of areas. Often some of that was based on false information. Safe schools is the perfect example where um, uh, the truth hasn't got in the way of a good story around what safe schools is. So um, watch this space, I think. What campaigning will you be doing in the coming months? Of course, you've done Brunei. There's been some success there. A bit of a disappointing response from the Australian government, though. What what activist issue will you be working on next and hoping to put on the Labor Party's agenda? Look, I've already started uh, labelling the Religious Freedom Bill for what I think it is, which is much more of a religious hate bill. So I will be keeping the pressure up around religious freedom and, and have been doing so on, on social media. I think we've really got to keep the pressure up until that has come out. And, and it's just really sad as a community that we're going through all of this drama again, because after the marriage equality plebiscite, we had the Ruddock review into religious freedom. And, you know, the, the Conservative government has referred religious freedom to the Australian Law Reform Commission. And, and the Senate inquiry, basically. And there's a Senate inquiry. And, and, you know, and they're preempting all of these things and sort of wear us down, beating the drum. I, I think so. You know, I think there is a big part of it borrowed largely from the US that 
and like you know i'm a, a largely white gay male who's been to university so i'm sitting on a fair amount of privilege in that position but sometimes i'm just bloody knackered at, at like this has been going on for years and years and years that everything we think we've won is is wound back in an instant and are you concerned that perhaps a lot of this is being pushed by the US? I mean, Rodney Croom was saying last week that this religious right movement is very well resourced and seems to be using freedom of religion as as a tool to cut back on the civil rights of minority groups. Look, absolutely. And you know, you know, the Liberal Party um, in the last election was actually involved, uh, and I can't remember the specific details, but a lot of the conservative data firms, uh, I think Cambridge Analytica was actually doing work for the Liberal Party over here. You know, large uh, conservative funders like the Koch brothers are regularly funding into Australia. The religious organisations are very well resourced because they all get tax deductibility status. You know, there's very few LGBTI organisations that get DGR or tax deductibility status. So we're already fighting a battle with one arm and sort of a couple of legs tied together. But I think we do need to hold firm that our constitution, section 116 of our constitution, makes Australia a secular country. And that was written when largely we were homogenous Christians and yet our founding fathers still believe that it was important enough to fight for. So I have hope, but I do think we need to remain ever vigilant and and having a look at what's happening in the US, whether it be around pro-choice, whether it be around women's rights, all those sorts of issues, um, it is being imported into Australia and we're going to have to fight even harder to stop those things under a, a federal conservative government. Many people said the marriage equality debate sucked the oxygen out of other issues that the LGBTIQ community had to deal with. It almost seems like, you know, we're being put in that position again with this religious freedom issue, which isn't necessarily a big issue for most queer people, but the government's kind of making it one for us. It's hard as a community. I'm, I'm not sure we're resourced to fight these perennial battles just because of the resourcing and the setup. So, you know, DGR is one part of it. I've been involved in an LGBTI giving circle that tries to raise money into this space. You know, you look at the the organisations that run in the LGBTI space and most are volunteer run, most have very little money. Don't um, get much government funding. Don't get much. Well, the exception... I mean, I'm being out sarcastic of, there. Out of Victoria, Victoria and ACT governments do fund a lot into that space, but outside those areas, there's, there's very little support into the area. Especially for advocacy. Particularly for advocacy... Um, um, and and you also have a look at even the population, you know, whether it's uh, homelessness, whether it's suicide, whether it's mental health, the population statistics alone show that we deserve more funding that we've, than we've got as a community. And um, I think it's just continuing to be eternally vigilant. And for those people who did vote for marriage equality or did donate for marriage equality, you really need to chip in now when groups like Equality Australia and, and others are saying, you know, have you got your 10 bucks? Have you got your 20 bucks? Because we're going to be fighting it for another year or two. And I'm already counting down the days, hopefully until the next federal election. So, We were talking to Rowena Johnson. Of course, she's organising a rally on Sunday in support of the Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill. Hopefully the Upper House will pass it. Three votes are, are needed. What's the next big ticket item that the Andrews government should be working on in the policy area for our community once that gets passed, assuming it does get passed? Well, look, the great thing about Daniel, and I've known him for a number of years, obviously running twice at state level, is um, he doesn't flinch on any of the LGBTI issues. So, but you what know, should he be prioritising next? What's next? Look, I think there's some stuff... Uh, that still needs to be sorted through, particularly for the intersex community around healthcare and some of the um, the medical for choices surgery, and not for example. Tra- forced surgery and things like that that happen in that space. So I think that will be a next area of reform, as well as looking beyond the Melbourne-centric area and looking more into rural and regional Victoria and what, what, 
what can be done in those sorts of spaces. You know, we'll be opening up the Pride Centre probably in the next couple of years. So that will be at least sort of a, a new venture into Victoria around supporting the LGBTI community. And I do just hope we get this bill passed in the upper house. You know, Labor's tried once before and unfortunately a, a, a conservative crossbench and, and the Liberal National Party in Victoria voted this a very similar bill down a number of years ago. So I'm just hopeful that this time the three votes will get it across the line. But I think the next iteration will be continuing to bring our statistics in things like mental health uh, and homelessness down to the average of the rest of the community. Um, And I also think there's still a lot of work to do in the trans and intersex space. How that will look, I think I'll take the leadership of some of those communities, but I think they've noted that there is still issues we need to work through. I asked you this question last time you were on. Uh, Of course, you've run for Paran twice and you're probably going to skirt around it again, but I'm going to ask anyway, are you going to run a third time? Well, for those of you in the know, I did actually uh, run, there was a casual vacancy that opened up uh, in an MLC seat in Southern Metropolitan Region uh, a couple of weeks ago with the resignation of Phil Daladarkis, um, and that was filled internally within the Labor Party, and I had intended, had there been a member vote, to put my name forward. Unfortunately, there wasn't a member vote? I am disappointed there wasn't a member vote. You know, there's 1,500 members of the Labor Party in that region, and and I think they have a right to vote for who represents them uh, in what is a very safe Labor seat. As a it happened. Uh, it was a decision taken by national executive, and and that they, was a factional stitch up. Uh, uh, pretty much a, a fair a fair call on that one there, but yeah, so it, it didn't go the way I wanted, uh, and it didn't go the way I think a lot of members wanted either. But um, I think it's still important. You know, we say we're a progressive state, but we actually have the lowest number in real terms and percentage terms of LGBTI politicians of any jurisdiction in Australia. Well, in I don't Parliament. think there are any in the Victorian Parliament for the Labor Party. Would that be correct? Uh, there's Harriet Shing in the upper house, right. who's uh, so one, who's uh, one. an open open lesbian, and no one in the in the lower house. Yeah, look, I think there's a there's a couple of people who. Uh, uh, identify and support the community in a general sense. Yeah. Um, so they're allies. Yeah, and there's a few more than that as well, but you know, they're they're on their journeys and right. and uh, uh, discoveries as well. But look, Victoria has never elected a publicly open uh, LGBTI person to the lower house and to the but best yet of the my liberals knowledge, have federally. It's kind of bizarre. The liberals have federal Labor has federally as well, but um, you know, I think the next iteration for everyone who's listening whether you're LGBTI, particularly the trans and intersex communities as well, and and uh, the bisexual community, I think it's really time that we get more of you involved in politics uh, and try to run because one of the big things is visibility. So, On that note, we're out of time. Neil Farrow, thanks for joining me today in the studio. No problems. Lovely to be here and uh, hope you have a great weekend. You too. Uh, Jacob's up next with a Friday rave, but taking us out is Arrested Development. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Fishing for religion. So on the dock, I sit in silence.
Staring at a seat that's full of violence. Steered to put my line in that water, cause it seems like no religion's in there. Naively so, I give it another go. Sitting in church, sharing legitimate words. Pastor tells the lady it'll be alright. Spray so you can see the pearly gates so white. The lady prays and 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 prays. It's everlasting, there's nothing wrong with praying, it's what she's asking. She's asking the Lord to let it go, so one day she can see the golden rose. What you pray for, God will give to be able to cope in this world we live. The word cope and the word change is directly opposite, not the same. She should have been praying to change her woes, but pastor said pray to cope with those. The government's happy with most Baptist churches, cause we don't do a damn thing to try to nurture. Brothers and sisters on a revolution, Baptist teachers dying is the only solution. Passiveness causes others to pass us by. I throw my line until I made my decision. Until then, I'm still fishing for the agent. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.